Our scripture today is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. This is called the Wexford Carol. time consider well and bear in mind what our good God for us has done in sending his beloved son with Mary holy we should pray to God with love Christmas Day in Bethlehem beyond that morn there was a blessed Messiah born good people all this Christmas time Consider well and bear in mind what our good God for us has done in sending his beloved Son. With Mary holy we should pray to God with love this Christmas day. In Bethlehem, upon that morn, there was a blessed Messiah born. That was the... The Wexford Carol. So what I'm what I'm doing for Advent season again is just meditating on some classic Christmas carols and finding hope in the themes there, finding hope in their significance. We kind of sing them rote, and it makes us happy sometimes when we sing Christmas carols. But what are we really singing about? You know. 
So that's the Wexford Carol. It's actually a traditional Irish carol from County Wexford. That's where it originated, hence the title of the carol. Uh, just show of hands, you're not in trouble if you don't raise your hand. How many people have heard that carol? Wow, more than I thought. It's, very, it's actually pretty obscure. Actually, I, I pulled 10 hymnals and hymn resources off my shelves, and it was not in one of them. Um, it's, it sounds medieval, it's not, it's a few hundred years old. It was made popular in the early 1900s when it was published in the Oxford Book of Carols. But the thing about it is, it's, it's hauntingly beautiful, but it's simple in its message. You listen to the words, I should have put the words, oh, the words were up there, awesome, thank you, Holly. Uh, the, the words are simple. But, but the melody is haunting, it's beautiful, so beautiful and yet simple in its message. And actually, some contemporary artists have recorded this in the last 50 years. Julie Andrews is one of them. Uh, the Chieftains, of course. Uh, Michael McDonald actually recorded it, but my favorite is Alison Krauss. She sings it with Yo-Yo Ma, um, and, and that, that is just excellent. But because of its elegance and simplicity, it made me think of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is a beautiful and simple message. It is not complicated to understand God's love for the world and sending his only son. And I hope today that you will come to understand and appreciate that simple message more deeply. Uh, whether you've heard it before and you, and you need, like I do, to appreciate it more deeply or whether you're really hearing this explained to you for the very first time, I hope we'll appreciate it and understand it more deeply. Simple message of Christmas is that God in his love came to us that God loves us, and he came to us. It's that simple. That's Christianity, that's Advent season, that's Christmas. God loves us, and he came to us out of his great love. And I want to divide that up into three sections. I want to talk about the content of this message, what it is. I also want to talk about the intent, what it's meant for, what the content is, is intended for. And then finally, I want to talk about the results of embracing the message. So, so just the content of this message, the intent of it, and finally, the result if you embrace its intended purpose. Okay, beautiful but simple message. So the content of this message is the love of God, the amazing love of God. Now, when you look at today's pandemic and you look at these tornadoes, right, that, that came through uh, a, few say, a, f- a few of our Midwestern states, when you think of human trafficking, when you think of the polarizing political and social divisions in our own society, we are tempted to assume just the opposite of this message, that God is not loving. Um, the Apostle John in the first century saw similar things in his ancient world, but he came to a very different conclusion. God not only loves, John came to the conclusion, but he is the very definition of love. 
God not only loves, but is the very definition of love itself. As John said in one of his letters, God is love. And the reason that Jesus came, as he reveals to Nicodemus, this is, these verses are, a lar- are part of a larger account of Jesus meeting in the middle of the night with, with one of the, the teaching rulers of Jerusalem, Nicodemus. Uh, and, and what Jesus reveals to Nicodemus is the reason God came was for love. Now, the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, he writes about this passage. He writes about the importance and the intensity of God's love that you pick up here in John 3, 16, and in the following verses. You have to excuse me. This, uh, my ear is not cooperating with the microphone today. Okay, so um, the first thing is the importance of God's love. It grounded the mission of Jesus. God's love is so important that it is the very reason why Jesus came. Look at verse 17. And the word, uh, actually, John 1:14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, this is the concept of the incarnation. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you've read Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. Unlike those gospels, John doesn't focus on Jesus's birth narratives and genealogies. He doesn't start there. But the concept of the incarnation, that our creator became in history a human being, a physical human being in time and space, the incarnation, it is one of the central themes of John's gospel. And we see it all the way back in the beginning as we noticed a couple of months ago when we looked at John chapter one and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? And so D.A. Carson, the scholar says, the reason that's so important to understand is because of what drove that mission. It was the love of God. Because look at what verse 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, Jesus said. That was not the, the point of the mission. Now, it's clear in the Bible through books like Daniel and First and Second Thessalonians and the book of Revelation that Christ will return in right, terrible justice to hold this world accountable. However, his first appearance was to rescue the world that he loves. The other issue is the intensity of the love of God. You may have seen this passage thousands of times in your life and really thought about what it's saying. God loves the world so much that he sent his only son. God so loved the world. Another way of saying that is God in this way love the world. In what way did he love the world? He sent his only son. That's what John is saying. That's the, his, his love was so intense for the world that he gave his only son. He gave his best. D.A. Carson says, the father gave his best. John didn't say God ordered his son to come. He didn't say God petitioned his son to consider coming. He didn't say God programmed his son. He didn't say God told his son. He say God gave his son. And the word gave is very important because it helps us define what love is on God's term. God gave his son. And so what we learn here about love is that love does not dominate or oppress 
Love does not take. It doesn't demand. Neither does it coddle or enable or neglect or ignore. Love gives. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Love gives. Love gives with purpose. Love gives without restraint. And the Bible's depiction of love even includes someone's enemies. As the Apostle Paul would write to the church in Rome decades later, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a definition of love that even includes those who punish and oppress and mistreat and speak ill against you. An intentional, without restraint, giving of yourself. The message of Christmas is the purposeful, decadent gift of God's love. You know, in an age where love is ambiguous, right? What does love mean? What, is, what, what does love mean in 21st century America? From all the way back to John Lennon telling us all you need is love, to John Lovitz on Saturday Night Live in the 80s saying, I just want to be loved, is that so wrong? To uh, more recently, Lin-Manuel Miranda telling us that love is 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 love. In such ambiguity, God's love, in contrast, is focused. It's specific. It's not, it's not exclusive. It is radically inclusive, even towards its enemies. It is focused in its content, as we have discovered here in these short, beautiful verses, but it's also focused in its intent. God's love is focused in who it's for and what it's for. The intent of this beautiful but simple message is in order to invoke a response in us. The message here is not simply an idea or an ideology or a doctrine, although it has produced in 2,000 years many ideas and ideologies and doctrines. But the gospel here does not say God so loved the world that he gave his 10 commandments. God so loved the world that he gave the five pillars of Islam. God so loved the world that he gave the four noble truths of the Buddha, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his son. You see, what we're, what we're discovering about the love of God is that it, it moved him to do something, not just to teach something, not just to give you an idea to say, live by this idea. God's love moved him to act. Have you ever seen love in action as opposed to love spoken? You know there's a difference, right? There's a difference between spoken love and love in action. God did something with his love. He moved towards us. That's why in Christianity, we, discuss, we, we, we believe in more than teachings. We don't live by and are saved by a list of teachings. We live by and are saved by events in time and space. Three of them, the incarnation, the crucifixion, 
the resurrection. You can read, read about this on our website where we talk about Christianity. It's, it's about three things. God became a human being. God became our sin and God became our life. Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. Historical events. And, and what are events? News. Right? We call events news. Something happened and we respond. The gospel come, the word gospel comes from a Greek word that they used in the New Testament, simply meant good news. Like when a Roman emperor had a child and a son was born and it was good news for that part of the world. And God is saying, I have my own good news. So that's not neutral information, right? Like an owner's manual. Where is your car's owner's manual? Not in your back pocket, right? If, if, if your owner's manual is in your back pocket, you have problems. You're either way too interested or your car is sick. <laughs> Usually the owner's manual is in the glove compartment. It's in the glove box and you only, re you only reference it when you absolutely need to know something, right? Good news is not an owner's manual. It's not neutral information. News is something that, depending upon how you respond, is a matter of life or death for us. It's a matter of reconciliation with God or death and alienation from him forever. That's what Jesus was trying to say to Nicodemus here in John chapter three. And he goes on in verse 18 to say, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, there, there is a contrast there. Jesus is saying, I did not come to the world to condemn it, but to save it. But if my message is rejected, people remain in their condemnation. They remain God's enemies, alienated from him. So my encouragement to you today and throughout this Christmas week, as Christmas approaches in six days or five days or whatever, um, is to think about this, to think about this unique, simple, beautiful message and to pursue it, to pursue the true gospel. Set aside, set aside your idea of what Christmas is all about. Set aside the eggnog and the presents and the food traditions and the family and, 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 and all the lights and all the wonderful, warm, fuzzy things that we associate with this time of year. It's all great. Set aside for a second and per pursue the true meaning of Christmas as defined here in John chapter three by Jesus of Nazareth. Even set aside all the things about Christianity or Christians or the church throughout history that have hurt and offended you that you probably have all sorts of reasonable objections to. Even set that aside for a moment and just focus on the simple, beautiful message that God loved the world and gave his son. Pursue the core of Christmas. Pursue the core of what the Bible calls the gospel, the good news. Remember something. Nicodemus pursued Jesus in the middle of the night. He couldn't do it for fear of what his associates and colleagues in the religious 
Jerusalem establishment would think of him. But, but Nicodemus re- represents so much of, of what religious leaders miss, right? Religious leaders throughout time, religious leaders throughout time are not exempt from misunderstanding God, right? Nicodemus is, is one of the most esteemed religious clerics in Jerusalem, and he doesn't get Jesus. He doesn't get him, but what does he do? He pursues him anyway. Do you realize Jesus utters these beautiful words and the apostle John recorded them for the ages all because Nicodemus pursued the truth even though he doubted. That's an encouragement to you if you're skeptical of the Bible or Christianity or if you're doubting right now whether Jesus is trustworthy, whether the Bible's God is trustworthy. Nicodemus, even in his doubt and skepticism, pursued the truth by pursuing Jesus. So I want to encourage you to ask, to question and question and question and pursue the truth by pursuing this Jesus. Now Jesus also reveals to Nicodemus why pursuing the truth is so difficult. I didn't say pursuing my truth or pursuing your truth. Jesus explains why pursuing the truth is so difficult. He says in verse 19, and this is the judgment, meaning this is the verdict. Another way of saying it is Jesus is saying, this is the situation. The light has come into the world And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Now, I know very few of us would like to think of ourselves as lovers of the darkness (laughs) or doers of evil. We don't think of ourselves that way, but but look at it this way, because what Jesus is saying is very radical and very offensive if you think you're a great person. But think of it this way, We all know that our eyes adjust to the darkness if we're in the darkness long enough and that a sudden burst or influx of light into the room is offensive and painful, whether you're walking out of the movie theater on a sunny day or whether you're trying to sleep and somebody very rudely turns on the lights. But once your eyes are accustomed to the darkness, It is most unwelcome to receive the light. And Jesus is saying that about human nature. He's saying that about us. He's saying, you're so used to managing things without me that once I come, your initial response is no to reject me. That's what he's saying. We reject darkness because we're used to doing things without our creator. That's ultimately what evil is. Evil doesn't have to be I murdered a million people. Evil can simply be, in my mind, I say no to God. Which is why the world has been and is and will always be a mess. Because people love darkness. People love not being in the presence of God, not having God in their lives more than the light itself, more than Jesus himself. 
Again, the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson wrote, God's love is to be admired, not because the world is so big and includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. That's why this love is so amazing. The incarnation, think about this, the incarnation was desperately necessary. Look, if God says, I love the world so much, I'm going to send my only son, it means we really were helpless. It, it's a countercultural concept here. Christmas means you cannot save yourself. That's what Christmas means. We cannot save ourselves. And we each have to come to terms with that, whether it's the first time in your life you're ever thinking about that, or whether you just need, and I just need to be reminded of it. But the flip side of Christmas is we cannot save ourselves. Because as Isaiah said, centuries before Jesus, we're walking around in darkness. But, but the result of embracing this two part message, right, that, that God came to save us, therefore we need saving and can't save ourselves. The result of embracing a message like this is what Jesus says in this passage earlier is new life, right? Nicodemus couldn't understand the idea of being reborn, of being born again. He's like, do I have to crawl back into my mother's womb? And Jesus is saying, no, you're missing the point. New life is what Jesus is talking about. Going from darkness to life, going from alienation to, with your creator to reconciliation with your creator. New life is the result if we embrace this message. And I, you know, my, I think my favorite Christmas movie illustrates this concept of new life perfectly. I don't think it was intended in the script. I don't, I don't know if the movie makers ever really knew what they were doing, but it's, it's right there, plain as day. George Bailey, okay, Frank Capra's classic. I think it's an American classic. Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. George Bailey, I think, is one of the most compelling, compelling, beautiful, complex, authentic characters in American movies. He's this talented, gifted, wonderful young man, right? He, the world is before him. So much promise and so much potential. He'd have been famous on TikTok by the age of 18 if they had it back then. This guy is going places. He's going to achieve things. But, but George Bailey, throughout his life as a young adult and then into middle ages as a husband and a father and the manager of a small bank, um, again and again, George sacrifices his own benefit and his own success and his own advancement for the sake of others. And not just his wife and children, and not just his parents and his brother. George again and again sacrifices his well-being and his prospects for his community, for Bedford Falls, upstate New York, for, for neighbors, for people who don't return the favor. He keeps giving himself and giving himself and giving himself without restraint. And what's the result? He gets deeper into debt. He comes under more suspicion, more scorned, more depressed, more discouraged until he's ready to give up his life and to throw it away. 
Think about that, right? We, 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 all know what it's, we all know the story of somebody at their wit's end, at the end of their rope, ready to throw their life away because of all the mistakes they've made and the people they've alienated. And George Bailey is exactly the opposite. He keeps doing the right thing and things get worse and worse for him until he gets to a point where he's, 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 he's in a bar and then he's on a bridge looking down at the water, right? And he says, if you're, if you're familiar with the movie, he, he finally says, right, he's trying desperately to fix everybody's life, to fix the town, and now he's trying to fix his own life and he's failing. And he finally looks up and he says, oh God, dear Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man. There you go again, if you're, right? Pursue, pursue, like Nicodemus. George says, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope. Have you ever said that? Have you ever felt that way as things have gotten worse and worse for you, but you thought you were doing the right thing. Joe Carter is uh, an editor and a contributor to the Gospel Coalition, and he, just a few weeks ago, um, I shared it on my Facebook page, but he, he wrote a really great little piece uh, comparing um, It's a Wonderful Life to another famous uh, work of literature and American movie. But he says, when George Bailey cries out, please God, let me live again, it's not merely because he's discovered that it's a wonderful life, but because he found he can't save his own life. It's not merely because he's discovered it's a wonderful life, but that he can't save that wonderful life. And therein, Joe Carter writes, therein lies a lesson for all of us expressive individualists. Translation, all of us individualistic Americans. If we can't save ourselves, then we can't recreate ourselves. Someone greater must show us the way, which creates in us an obligation to surrender and follow. And there again is the intent of the gospel to invoke in us a response. And if that response is to embrace it, the result is new life. Interestingly enough, George Bailey, Joe Carter goes on to write, George Bailey found his life, got his life back only after giving it up and realizing that he could not save himself, nor the people around him. So the simple beauty of the gospel's message is that God came and he lived among us. Not because we were lovable, but because he is love. And if you receive that gift, then you will pass from death to life. You will pass from alienation to reconciliation, from guilt to forgiveness. The simple message of Christmas, of Advent, is 
that God loves us and because of his love, he came to save us. So, this Christmas week, next few days, think about that. Think about that core essence of Christianity, the good news. Simple message, beautiful message, difficult to embrace unless you are willing to give yourself up and acknowledge that you can't save yourself, but a God entered human history to do just that, right? And we'll close with the words from that carol. Good people all this Christmas time, consider well and bear in mind what our good God for us has done in sending his beloved son. Let's pray. Our good God, we thank you that you didn't simply give us a bunch of rules that we absolutely cannot keep. We thank you that you sent your son to keep them perfectly for us. Help us to receive him as coming from you, full of grace and truth. Father, uh, such a simple message I know seems foolish to some or offensive to others, but as the Apostle Paul said, Jesus, we preach you crucified. And so help us to embrace this great gift as we come to your table and feast on your sacrifice that gave us true life. We love you, Lord Jesus. Amen.